Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, the editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the champion of Duck, Duck, Goose and all other preschool games, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play a live interview I recently conducted in New York with Gabe Weinberg, the CEO of the privacy-focused search engine DuckDuckGo. This interview was recorded live at the Made by We space in New York City, which is an event space in the Flatiron District owned by WeWork. Let's go there now to hear my interview with Gabe Weinberg. Um, we're going to very quickly bring up Gabe. Come on up, Gabe Weinberg. He's from Duck Echo. We're going to talk about the awfulness of Google now. Come on. Hello. This is Gabe. From, he's the founder and CEO of DuckDuckGo. This is another search engine. You do have a choice in, the, in this world, yes, whether you, you know it or not. <laughs> All right. Um, so, Gabe, we were just talking about inequity and wealth and stuff like that. Let's talk about inequity of information, because that's really what's happened. We have given over control of our information to one company, really, in, in this world. And I'm, I'm going to uh, tell one quick story before we start so you get a sense of it. Um, I was uh, walking in the early days of Google with Larry or Sergey. I, I often can't tell them apart. And there was a room full of televisions, like a Circuit City. And I looked in, and it was record. It was they were all on all these dozens of televisions, and I said, "What are you doing?" And they and I think it was Larry said, "We're recording all of television," and I was like, "Why?" And he said, "So we can figure out a way to search it." And I said, "Have you gotten the copyright from those people to do that? Have you actually reached out?" And he said, "Why should we do that? Why do we need to do that?" And I said, "Well, because if you have record it, then you'll have it recorded." then you'll have the search for it, and then nobody else can do it, and then you'll dominate it. And he was like, uh-huh. And I was like, that's wrong to do that. And he was like, okay. And we moved on. And it was a really interesting moment for me that they really were super interested in owning every piece of information on the planet. It was really, it was a revelatory moment for me. Talk about what we have now. Talk a little bit about DuckDuckGo first, about what you're trying to do, because you have been a search engine for how long? 11 years. Right. So talk about what you do precisely and how it contrasts with Google. Yeah, so DuckDuckGo is a general internet privacy company at this point, and we help you essentially escape the creepiness and tracking on the internet. We've been running this non-tracking search engine alternative to Google for 11 years. We're doing about a billion searches a month. It's about 1% market share in the U.S. now, fourth largest search engine. And then we also operate a mobile browser that, uh, and browser extensions for Chrome and Firefox that block trackers across the internet. So mm -hmm. as you're expressing, Google and Facebook are the largest purveyors of these trackers. 
but we block hundreds, tracks from hundreds of companies. And then we also enable more encryption on the internet. So when you go to a website, you know, there's an HTTP, HTTPS version. Sometimes sites have the unencrypted version and the encrypted version, but they send you to the unencrypted version. And so mm-hmm. we force you to go That's to That's in order to follow you. Yeah. And so we force you to go to the encrypted version, which helps your ISPs not from tracking you. So it's all one download that just helps you escape tracking on the internet. So why did you decide to do this? Because a while ago, everyone was welcoming this idea of, of convenience. I think Marguerite Bestiger said that to me, is that we've traded convenience for something better. And she was talking about search engines she uses in Europe that are different. Um, and Google's convenient. Google has mail. Google has maps. Google has this. Um, and I'm using that because you, you're in the search business. Um, why did you decide to do this in the first place? Well, I have a I have a tech policy background. So my graduate degree is in tech policy from MIT. And I originally got into search actually because I was interested in search. But immediately after launching it, I started getting privacy questions. This was well before Snowden, still 2008. Mm-hmm. And so I did my own investigation and found two really interesting things. One, Searches are essentially the most private thing on the internet. You just type in all your like deepest, darkest secrets. Right, search, absolutely. Right? And um, the second thing is you don't need to actually track people to make money on search. So Google still, to this day, and there's been congressional testimony, actually the hearing that I was at, um, the representative from Google said this, they still make most of their money off the same way DuckDuckGo makes money, contextual advertising, nothing to do with following you around. It's keywords on the search page. So right. you type in car, you get a car ad. And you can do that without tracking anybody. And so what I realized pretty quickly is that's a better user experience and just made the decision not to track people. Um, at the b- beginning of that, that wasn't the main differentiator because pri- we weren't as aware of all the privacy harms. But as time has gone on, it's become the main driver for people to adopt that. To adopt that. So talk about contextual advertising because this is just a basic business as if you type whatever. And you know, wh- one, a lot of ways if you think about a Google or what you are... Search is like sort of a database of human intentions. Yes, it's right? a this great is... history of advertising, and I think it helps to explain the current uh, market. And so it used to be the case, as, as you're saying, and the internet started all the way up until the mid-2000s, this contextual advertising was basically all advertising. So on search, it's just the context of the page. But it was also the case on publisher sites. I'm sure you remember, like sites used to sell their own ads. They would put um, advertising based on the content of the article. And then the mid-2000s, it switched to behavioral advertising, which is the creepy ads, the ones that kind of follow you around the internet. And two companies dominate that because they have all the data on people, you know, Google and Facebook. But there's been no real proof that that is really better, and it's arguably way worse for the publishers who then have ceded all sorts of money to Google and Facebook and kind of decimated So talk about model. that shift to behavioral advertising, because when you did it, I mean, years ago at Google also, there used to be a ticker yep. that used to run across when you entered Google about what people were searching for at that moment, and they stripped it of dirty stuff, which was quite a bit apparently. Um, but you would see things like, uh, you know, horses, jam, French, and you'd be like, what the fuck is that person <laughs> searching for? Like, you know, I would sit yeah. there and I'm like, I don't even understand that query. Um, Talk about how it shifted from that to the idea of behavioral. Why go there? What happened was is you had publishers selling the biggest inventory, so the top of the page, banner advertising, and then they still wanted to make some more money, so they had seeded the bottom of the page to ad networks they didn't want to sell, and Google's was the biggest. It was AdSense, based on a company they actually acquired. Called DoubleClick. Before that. Before DoubleClick. Yeah, one before that. And then they acquired DoubleClick in 2007. And so slowly, publishers kind of seeded some of their page over to it. And then Google ended up having all this behavioral data. So if you search for something, you could then follow people around with that search. 
And those advertisements became more lucrative. And then slowly publishers ceded most of their page over to this behavioral advertising. However, my proposition is innovation and contextual advertising hasn't happened in the last 10 years. And it may be just as lucrative. So you can imagine videos, articles, similarly parsing out what, what the real content of it is and putting ads just based on that, not based on you. And there's been a little evidence of this after GDPR. New York Times, for example, uh, got rid of all the behavioral advertising in Europe and incre- saw an increase in revenue. Now, partly that's because they just got rid of the middleman, but partly that's because it actually is useful advertising. Like you write an article on airplanes and you have an airplane ad. Right. So what was the sh- why the shift then to behavioral? Because they just decided to do it? Yeah, it's strategic for their companies. Because if you think about their position, they're the ones with the data monopolies. And so if they are going to run an ad network, they should run it based on behavioral because you know, no one can compete with them on that. The real reason why that's enabled is because there's been no real regulation in tech mm-hmm. that would have prevented No, that. there's zero regulation. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's the one from you know, mid-230, but that's it. Right. Um, talk about 230. Do people, do people know who what Section 230 is? Well, those who don't, it's that the Communications Decency Act, which I wrote about for the Washington Post 109 years ago, was an act that they put through, most of which was stripped out. Most of the act was deemed, it was, it was started by people who were worried about dirty stuff on the internet, essentially. And it, within the Communications Decency Act was, was Section 230, which gave internet companies broad immunity from anything that happened on their platform. And it was designed so that these companies would be able to grow and, and not be um, sued to death, essentially. Um, and their businesses wouldn't, would be able to, they were small businesses at the time. And it continues to protect big companies like Google and Facebook, YouTube. Um, and when you mention the idea of, now there's been some uh, eking away at 2.30 around sex trafficking and some other things, but Essentially, if you mention the idea of removing 230 to internet companies, they, they start immediately vomiting on their shoes because it would mean they would be subject to legal attacks, which would be unprecedented, presumably, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's the, I, I think it's the specter of any regulation, right? Right. But the idea that there would be no regulation on digital forever is ridiculous. I mean, mm-hmm. every other area of technology has regulation to pull back some of these externalities. Right. So I think it's inevitable. It's just a matter of what it looks like and when. All right. So they moved to behavioral advertising. I want to get to that legislation in a second because you were proposing your own legislation, correct? They get this behavioral information. Talk a little bit about what it what it does because people sort of are very unclear about what happens yes. when, when this occurs. I mean, essentially, um, these trackers exist across the web. So when you go to a website, like Recode even, there are trackers hiding behind it. So you think you're just interacting with the site you're on, but really there are companies like Google and Facebook and many others kind of slurping up your information, your browsing history. And so through these various mechanisms, they're getting purchase history, location history, browsing history, search history. And when you add all that together... And made more important by mobile. Yeah, exactly. It's harder to block stuff on mobile. You get location much more granular. Some Mm -hmm. of these are sending like hundreds of data points a day. And so you get a a really robust profile of you. And then when you go to now a website that has advertising for one of these networks, there's a real-time bidding against you as a person. And there's an auction to sell you an ad based on all this creepy information you didn't even realize people captured. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what people are finally starting to realize, and they've been um, going on the idea that they were just interacting with this one's website. But once they find out that all these tracking is going on, they become 
incensed, effectively. Do you think people are actually mad? Or I do, yeah. Explain that to me. Because yeah, so, a lot of the tech companies say they don't care about this. They don't care about privacy. I, I just interviewed Scott McNeely recently. Who's he's a famous He's one. famous yeah. for saying... Privacy is dead. Pri- no. Get over ha- our get, privacy. You have no privacy. <laughs> get over it. You have... You, you, yeah. Privacy is dead. Get over it. I mean, so we track this, like, do national surveys very closely. And it's increased again and again and again of people, once they understand what's going on, they want to take action. And so... There is a uh, setting, which is part of the legislation that our legislation is based off, called Do Not Track. So in your browser, in most browsers, if you delve into the settings, into the privacy settings, there's something that says Do Not Track. And our measurements, and it's not just us, because Gizmodo measured their sites, um, between 10 and 25%, depending on what you look at, people have enabled that setting. So they've actually kind of, people are like, no one ever goes into settings and looks at privacy. It's not true. Literally, tens of millions of Americans have gone into their browser settings and, and checked this thing. And so people do care, and that has just climbed up and up and up as the knowledge of the tracking is going on. Because before you knew about it, you were okay with it because you didn't realize it was so invasive. Mm-hmm. But as, like, after Cambridge Analytica and all the stories about the tracking, that number just keeps going up and up and up. So one of the things a lot of people do bring up with me still, though, is, well, I don't really care. I, I don't have much to hide. I don't know what's doesn't matter. I get that all the time. Like, who cares if they know if I went to Best Buy and then bought a, like, whatever I bought. Talk to why that might be not so, the best way to think about it. Yeah, there, there's kind of two answers to that. One is philosophical in that, you know, privacy is a fundamental human right, and so you, you don't need to care or hide anything to exercise your rights. Like, you wouldn't say that for speech. Just because you have nothing to say doesn't mean you should have a right to free speech. So that's kind of on the philosophical side. On the harm side, there are some that people don't realize. So um, a lot of people really don't like the creepy ads following them around. Some people seem to be fine with that. At a more deeper level, there's this thing called the filter bubble, um, which is that you know recommendation algorithms, and in particular search results, are tailored to you. And that means that you're not seeing what everyone else is seeing. Mm-hmm. And that actually distorts the democracy. And that's a real harm to individual people and society. Um, and then there's just the general identity theft um, and data breaches, which is happening over and over again, which is one of the main drivers for for adopting stuff like that. Adopting that. So, talk. You're, you want You've submitted legislation. You, you've created legislation that you would like model, someone model legislation. Yeah. That you would like someone to to submit to Congress. Explain what you want to do. Yeah. So um, this is in the landscape of, of all the privacy legislation. And I would love to hear the nuance of it. Now, just to understand, we do not have a national privacy bill in this country at all. Uh, other countries do, um, and much more stringent, like GDPR in Europe. Uh, but we don't have one. We have uh, one in California that's about, CCPA. Yep. about to come online, but the lobbyists are trying to defang it rather substantively. There are 10 others in states across the country. I don't know what where they, there are certain states that are doing them. I think Louisiana has one. There's all kinds of states. Vermont has a data broker law. A lot Let's of hope them. Alabama doesn't have one, but <laughs> go ahead. Um, sorry, but Jesus Christ. All right. Um, uh, but it, there's too much of a patchwork of them, correct, across the country, the idea. There's not a national bill. There's no national bill. We really should have a national bill mm-hmm. um, like GDPR. But one of the problems with GDPR is how it's operationalized is a lot of consent dialogues. And that's called notice and consent, and people just end up clicking the consent. And so what we think a better mechanism is this, this thing that I was talking about earlier, this do not track setting in the browser that tens of millions of people have already put on. 
Um, and the fact that consumers have already adopted it and it's in the browser, it's just an amazing legislative opportunity, just give it teeth. And it's actually a better mechanism for privacy laws because once you have this setting and it works, you don't have to deal with all the pop-ups anymore. You just set it once and then sites can't track you. Uh, should it be set from the beginning as do not track? This is a debate mm-hmm. whether it should be default on or default off. I would love it to be default, op, you know, have to opt out of it. But I'd be happy if it was opt in as well because I think people will. Whoa, people keep tripping here. <laughs> this is, this That's is outside. The, the second trip. Hello. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> it was the same guy. Okay. It's the same guy tripping. All right. Now he's just fucking with me. All right. Go ahead. Sorry. No worries. I, I think people will it's opt Google. in. Google. Yeah. I think people will opt in if they have the opportunity and they can opt out of this tracking. And so what we're hoping is, there, there's kind of two things. One, as you said, California is getting defanged, the California mm-hmm. bill. As that happens, the pressure for a federal bill is going down this year mm-hmm. because there's no, if it's all defanged, there's no re- pressure to you know, pass something that preempts it. And so one thing that... But still, all the people in the country really want something passed. And so one option here is this would be a much simpler thing to pass. Just give a do not track mandate for no tracking for that setting. Much easier than comprehensive um, legislation. The other thing is that any comprehensive legislation that gets passed, do not track can be the mechanism. So we're hoping that it gets added to any larger bill as the mechanism to help people opt out. So why do people have to opt out? You don't have to opt. Why do they have to opt into it, I guess? Opt, opt into it. Because you don't have to opt into clean water. You don't have to opt into, like, I think I'd like my water clean, clean or dirty. Like, you, it just, it's, it's kind of crazy, the stuff that consumers have to do in order to protect themselves compared to almost any other thing they use. You don't, again, opt in. I'd like the tires that don't fall off. Opt in. I'd like the, you know... I'd like the food that isn't tainted, please. Why is that mentality around? I think the mentality is around because of the lobbying that it would distort the advertising business model. And I would love it to be opt-in by default. But in a realistic way, I'm, I, I think if it was operationalized as a way to opt out, I think that would be effective. Because as you said before, uh, the other argument is some people don't care. And that gives people really the choice. That they just could leave it there. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this with Gabe Weinberg, the CEO of DuckDuckGo. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. How is it operating against a site like 
Google or a big site where you're 1%. How do you do that? It's been interesting. Okay. We uh, try to educate people about privacy and that they're alternative. So our main issue is just not everybody knows about us. You know, there's 20% of people that we think would be interested in switching to DuckDuckGo, but it's hard to kind of convey all these privacy concepts. I'll give you an example. We've been talking about the filter bubble for years. In 2012, we ran a study on Google that we think influenced the 2012 election. Mm -hmm. That's how long ago it was. And, uh, but nobody, we had to speak for 10 minutes to explain what the filter bubble was back then. Mm -hmm. But after 2016, in the last two years, now we can talk about the filter bubble, just name it, and people know what it is generally. Um, how many people know what the filter bubble is? I'm just curious. Explain the filter yeah. bubble. <laughs> well, it's, it's the idea, well, first of all, that percentage is very high, so I like that. Um, but it's the idea that, for search in particular, as an example, when you search, you expect to get the results, right? If you search for gun control or abortion, you expect, we search at the same time, right here, you would expect to get the same thing. But that's actually not what we found when we yes, did a study on Google. Yes, they give you different search results. Yeah, and people don't realize that. And so, in addition, we found that it varies a lot by location. And so, if you take that to the extreme, let's say that voting districts are getting different results for candidates or issues, it can skew the polarization of that district very easily over time. Because people who are undecided are actually searching for these topics, and people generally click on the first link. And if you're controlling that first link in that district, okay. that's what people are going to learn about. So what, what do you, Anand was just, uh, Anand was just talking about the idea of people that shouldn't have this kind of power, having this kind of power. How do you look at it? Because it, it is a group of maybe a thousand people making these decisions in Silicon Valley, pretty much, if, if that many. And recently I did an interview with Tristan Harris, and he was talking about, he called it the, the climate change of culture is what we're undergoing. And the only positive part about it is there are only a thousand people whose minds you have to change on this. Do you, how do you look at that small amount of people making decisions for the entire world, really? Um, and what can we do about that? Yeah, I look at it uh, structurally. And I think that on the consumer side that we've talked about, there needs to be a way to opt out, which would lower the power, right? Mm -hmm. On the kind of structural business side, at the core of this problem, at least the one that we were talking about here, is data monopolies, right? It's mm -hmm. the collection of data profiles. And there are ways to split those up. So some people are talking about extreme measures, which I'd be in favor of, spinning off companies. But there are other ways to do it, such as not allowing uh, data to be shared between you know, different business units. So if you're on Instagram and you, you know, are browsing something, that data cannot be shared and used on Facebook or WhatsApp. Which was precisely the reason Facebook bought that company. Yeah, right. and, um, and, and that's, that's why it should have been rejected in the first place. But at this point, one thing you can do is legislate, and, and it was part of our proposal, is that if you go to that site, you can't share data back to the other sites. And so that would effectively add more competition and less power in these decisions. Mm -hmm. Except they sit next to each other. They happen to on that same ridiculous campus they have. You know, they share the same kombucha stand, so it's hard to... That's why the argument for separating them more strictly is pretty solid. What about opening up their data that they have collected, both companies, for example? Because essentially we're talking about Facebook and Google pretty much, and Amazon's just starting to get into that business, the advertising business. It's two companies right now, correct? Yeah, in the digital advertising market, absolutely. Um, there's a... The debate's kind of out on interoperability, which is what that is. 
it, it may help in the social network space. Um, it's less important in the search space because, as I was saying earlier, you, know, you actually don't need these profiles to do good search results. They're really using search to do ads on YouTube and Gmail and all these other places. And so it could help in social networks to help someone start a social network and be able to switch all your friends right. a little quicker, but it probably wouldn't solve Google's problem. There hasn't been a major social network started since 2011, yeah. which is amazing if you think about that. And there's a reason, because why do it? And for the rest of it, I think it's just Snapchat, correct? And, the, and he's the chief product officer for Facebook right now, as far as I can tell, because um, they steal all his ideas. Um, so how do you then shift that? How do you stop that? Just separating them? Which are the ways you think should happen? I really think you have to get to the core of this data monopoly. That's the key. And I think part of the problem actually has been that market definition. Is like people think of it as search market, social network market. Um, it's what you saw in Congress too. But it really is the digital advertising market. That's where the domination is. Right. And so you have to change the digital advertising market. Um, you can do that by having you know, putting more Chinese walls between companies. You can do that by doing something like Do Not Track, which would force companies to be more contextual. And so all of a sudden, you'd be steering the industry back to the contextual from the behavioral. Because you know, 25% of people now you would advertise on contextual. Behavioral would be outlawed for them. Mm-hmm. And so that would just break up the, um, the competitive advantage, basically, of the data profiles. And when you have behavior, do you think, do you think that's even possible because the idea is adding more with AI is adding more and more behavioral data in order to track you and in company in countries like China and other places they're using that behavioral data very they're using a lot of it including facial recognition the companies here I think are just dying to get into facial recognition and know the controversies around it so it doesn't seem like backing away from behavioral is something they seem to be doubling down in behavioral. I, that's why I believe you need government regulation in it. And, and to your point, you can look at China as an example. And so not only should you push things back to contextual, but you probably should have some lines, bright lines, that you can't cross in behavioral. Right? You saw San Francisco ban it the other day. This, this week, San Francisco banned uh, facial, ab- facial recognition yeah. software being used in the city. Is that correct? Or- yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, for for government. For government. Um, another good example, which isn't talked about that much, is political advertising on you know on Facebook. So you know there's oh it's been, talked about a lot. Yeah. yeah. Well, not this part. There's this disclosure, but arguably there should be a ban on behavioral advertising to some level of people, um, just blanket for political advertising. To some level of people, what do you mean? So like a thousand people or ten thousand, you can pick your cutoff and then say you cannot target ads at a population less than that amount. Because what's happening now is the behavioral advertising is just targeting you, mm-hmm. right? Or a very small amount of people. And it's using, it's manipulative in two ways. You can manipulate uh, the targeting. So I can select just the, the three or five people that I think would like totally be triggered by this. And you could also do A B testing and change words and images to get like the perfect. You know, manipulation. It's, uh, Tristan Harris has a better mm-hmm. words for this. Mm-hmm. I forget what he says, but the brainstem. Yes, kind it goes of down stuff, the brainstem, yeah. right? And that kind of stuff should be probably outlawed, especially for political advertising. For to to individualize people. Yeah, and it, but not each individual. Probably at some threshold that's, that's significantly high. Like they make the argument 
oh, this is just like TV, our disclosures are going to be like TV. Well, you know, you can't target, or you might be available eventually, which also should be outlawed, but in TV, you weren't targeting down to the individual person. Right. You're targeting great groups of people. Yeah. You, know, you also couldn't just put ads up the way they do on Facebook. Right, or, and, and do all this testing. You, couldn't right. do, you can't test a thousand ads. Mm-hmm. So do you think our regulators are up to this test? Now you're, you're writing your own legislation. I'm assuming you're running your company at the same time and you don't, you're not a legislator. That's true. So how do you look at our legislators? Is there more strength on, elsewhere in the world or in this country? Let's talk just about this country because I think most people saw the Facebook hearings. Yeah. And... Mark looked great in that hearing, and he's not the most articulate of people. Um, it's largely because most of the legislators looked so bad and looked so ignorant. And so when you say Mark looks so good, it was because it was such a low, low bar that it was hard not to. I think they could have put a ham sandwich there and it would have looked pretty good. Um, how do you, but that said, I do have talked to legislators who are quite smart. There's a lot of them in Washington, yeah. and especially in the regulatory agencies and elsewhere. What's the problem from a regulatory? Is it the money these companies are throwing at, at lobbyists at them, or is it just a lack of will, or is it ignorance? What do you, how, do you, how does that change? Right, so to answer your first question, I mean, there are very smart people there, and um, just like running a, a company, you know, they hire staff, and there's lots of senators who've hired really good tech staff, and there's a handful, of maybe five to ten, um, and they're writing, they're, they're trying to write some of this legislation. So I don't think you need the whole Senate writing it, for example. Um, and so I'm actually pretty encouraged on that regard, um, the level of thought that's been going into some of these proposals. Um, I think that writing something like GDPR it, it is complicated. It did take Europe, it was a, Europe was doing it for 20 years. I mean, that was an update of a 1995 mm-hmm. law, and then they took, you know, five years to update it, basically. Um, And so we're just getting started this year. So there is some amount of time that it will take. Um, That's one reason we propose this legislation, because you can do this right now. Like, this is an easy thing you could do. Like, solving a lot of it all at once is difficult. I'd prefer to do it a little bit in piecemeal, Mm -hmm. as, as opposed to just one thing and then be done. That's the other thing I don't really like about our government system, is we pass something and then we don't touch for 20 years, which is Right. What happened to the you know the CDA? It would be better if we passed something every year or two and kind of tweaked it. So, what do you imagine of the many uh, different things that are happening? Like right now, their FTC is considering fining Facebook five billion dollars, which yes. I call the parking ticket. Yes, I agree with you. Thank you. Um, I'm correct. Um, Need another zero. Two zeros, actually. Yeah. I've decided. <laughs> yeah, that would do it. Two zeros. Would, yes, that would do it. Um, <laughs> But the, but the concept is fining them, taxing them is another way, regulatory guardrails is another way, and break up antitrust action for presumably break up and then not letting them buy anything. Yeah. Of those things, what do you imagine is the most effective right now? I think uh, not letting them buy things would be good. Right. Anything that gets at if you're talking about Google and Facebook and the digital advertising market, anything that gets at the data monopoly would be good. Um, of those, you know, Breaking Up could do it, Chinese Wall could do it, Do Not Track could do it. Um, all of those would do something. And why, how much time do you imagine it will take? There is a tech lash going on right now, and it's largely because of the 2016 election and the idea that the Russians were customers of these companies. 
do you imagine that will continue or do you think it's going to peter out in the next and how dangerous is it for the next elections that these continue to be issues do you think these companies have finally sort of come to jesus and said oh dear we've made some errors here i I think you're seeing that because all of their announcements have just been centered around privacy right so they're Mm -hmm. they're feeling this is a real thing at this point maybe scott mcneely still saying that but everybody else is is now embracing at least the word privacy whether they mean it or not right I think you're going to see the tech clash continue until you know people think there's some meaningful change. I worry about the breakup because that takes a really long time, you know, mm-hmm. historically. Right. And some of these other things can be done much quicker. And so I'm hoping that something will get done quicker. I'm a little saddened by what's happened in California because I think that's slowing things down. Right. But what I haven't heard anyone talk about, which is interesting, is that got started by a ballot measure. For people who don't know, everything in California yeah. gets started one by person, a ballot measure. Just so you know, yeah, one person did that. Yeah, um, there's nothing to stop somebody from doing it again if it gets watered down. That put someone put on something else. Yeah, just or put on the same thing again. Right. You know, if it gets totally watered down, just do the same thing. And yet we don't have privacy in place. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with Gabe Weinberg, the CEO of DuckDuckGo. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Talk just very quickly, just a few more minutes. What can people do right now besides using DuckDuckGo? What are some of the things they should be doing to protect themselves online and things that they don't realize they're being tracked? Besides, please, please don't buy one of their internet home devices. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah. Um, My son goes around and unplugs them all in our house. (laughs) Yeah, they don't work. Um, So they make lovely paperweights, but go ahead. Facebook is an interesting challenge. I mean, I haven't been a Facebook user for a long time, and there's plenty of studies that show that's a healthy choice. Yeah. But there aren't great alternatives to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that one, I think you, you should leave, and a lot of people have. Um, just leave Facebook. Just leave it, yeah. Right. For Google, um, there are actually alternatives in like every category. So, you know, we're in search, but, you know, there's alternatives in emails, alternatives in. Such as? Proton Mail is, is a big one. We use uh, FastMail at DuckDuckGo. In you know, Docs, there's things like Zoho. They're not all super private like us, but they're often paid but cheap alternatives that put privacy first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would leave the services because the idea that their alternatives don't exist is just nonsense. Well, although it's inconvenient because they all work together on your phones or whatever you have. They all seamlessly work together. You know, I, I, I've been out for a long time, but um, 
I, it's totally productive. I mean, you just click it on a different app on your phone. They're all on your home screen. You know, you go into a different one. Okay. Um, <laughs> what else should yeah. people do to protect themselves? So in the devices themselves, there's a bunch of privacy settings that actually matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a blog at spreadprivacy.com with device tips that we just, education, wrote it all up. Um, and there are things like you can turn off the ad tracking on a lot of, on, on Apple, for instance. Um, you can use encryption end-to-end. You can basically encrypt your, your Apple's by default, but you can do your laptop. Um, these are things that take like an hour but you run through the checklist, and then you're a lot more private. So encryption, encrypting your laptop, yeah, encrypting your phone, or having a phone, encrypting everything, um, changing, like basically doing all the opt outs you can do, um, which we have a, like a list, and you can run through the settings, and then switching off of these services, kind of voting with your feet. What about mapping? So we use uh, Apple Maps for our search results. They're such bad maps. <laughs> They are. They have gotten a lot better. Oh um, sure. I would give them a try. All right. Okay. Because they're terrible maps. That's why. I, I mean, it's hard not to use a Google map because they're so good. I would give them a try. Okay. All right. Anything else? Any other things? Uh, those are the top ones because I don't want to scare people that it's difficult. You know, mm-hmm. it really is. You spend a few minutes on this and you you can be out. Like I think people think it's such a gargantuan thing to leave right. these companies. And I don't think that's actually true. And what about? Um, Cameras and audio. I, just so you know, when I was visiting Facebook, I noticed Mark had his camera oh, covered. Yeah. He had his covers. audio covered. He had everything covered. Because well, yeah, absolutely. When you you know, I people conflate privacy and security a lot, but, but I totally agree. So on the security side, you should definitely have a webcam cover um, and use two-factor authentication. You know that thing that texts you all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you should use that for all services. So most services that you have, your your email is the most important. But you can set up this two-factor authentication much better because most of the hacks that have happened, a lot of the identity theft, has all been from phishing on your email, mm-hmm. and you know you click on something, type in your password, and two-factor authentication is just another layer that prevents that from happening. All right, and covering, and when you get into things like facial recognition and other issues, as people start to use VR and AR and things like that, what would you advise people? Facial recognition is hard. There, there are ways to actually. Um, change like wear things and change your face so you don't get captured by the cameras. But I think that wear things and change your face. Yeah, you can you can like I mask. What, it's called a mask. But yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. More minor things. I forget <laughs> what it was, but you can like put like aluminum foil or something that like freaks things out. Okay. Um, but I'm not recommending that. You don't see me okay. wearing it. I think the problem with facial is you're going to need laws. You know, with some of this stuff. And right. so San Francisco's great. You know, starting the trend there. Okay, to not to not to use facial and companies not to use yeah, facial recognition. Yeah, you're going to need that one is going to need to be solved at a more societal level. Do you think people realize how much facial facial recognition is used in this country? No, not at all. There was a uh, the Privacy Project, the New York Times. Um, mm-hmm. So you know you're aware there was a really interesting story like two weeks ago where they they took. I don't know if you read that one. Mm-hmm. They took cameras. It was part of the project. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. We, we, we were part yeah, of that story. Yeah. No, that's project. But oh, right. yeah. So they, they, uh, they took webcam, live webcam footage that was just on a uh, camera and just put it up on Amazon with their facial recognition, off-the-shelf stuff, and then were able to like, de-identify a bunch of different people. Yeah. And then called them up and was like, I saw you walking here. Right. And it took, it took $100 and like three hours. Right. Well, exactly. And they also are using things much more seriously in workplaces 
to watch your face yeah. as you work, and also to decide whether to hire you based on your facial expressions. Um, and they, what they're trying to do right now, from what I understand, is track some of the some of the new software will track your face and expressions during an interview, and then match it to their top performers or their, whose faces they were also tracking. And therefore, don't hire you if you're not one of their top performers' facial expressions. It's crazy. And this is another area, just bias and algorithms in general. But this is to your earlier point, is that uh, I, I guess the central point about regulation is there's been no regulation for 20 years, right? So there's, a, there's just a dearth of regulation. And you're not going to solve it in one shot. And so like this bias in algorithms probably needs to be a separate bill, right? Mm-hmm. AI in general this area, facial recognition. We need to tackle these problems separately. But there they're are the biggest problems, and so we should be doing it year after year. I worry that there's going to be a checkbox, like we pass something and then it's going to be done. We're going right. to have to keep the pressure on. Do you ever imagine, and I'll get to questions from the audience, that we'll ever escape the enormous power of something like Google? Because what it's become is that it is the answer machine for everything, really. Even though you have 1%, that's, they have 90%. Everywhere, yeah, I, I do. I think if we have these uh, structural changes, I think you could see the market open up. We are a small company, right? And so we're only sixty-five people. And so you're like, well, how do you compete? And I mentioned earlier we use Apple Maps, right? And we could debate how good they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but in each of these verticals, there are actually really good answers. So Yelp for restaurants, which we use. You know, we use Wikipedia just like Google does for Yelp is getting crushed by Google. Yeah, exactly. And so, but it's not like their answers aren't good, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if the market opened up a bit, um, these companies could thrive more. And we use them and put together good search results just based on all these other companies. And so, I think that the idea that they're this magic, kind of magic AI that no one can compete with, I think, is false. Because if you look around in all these categories, there actually are good alternatives. But given that the amount of money they have, the amount of money they make, and and the fact that consumers like them, like using them, I think one of the issues around all these tech companies is, you know, Amazon's so great about delivery, even though they're ruining the lives of retailers across the country. I'm sorry about that, or causing people to have jobs, or, or their contractors are treated badly within the stores. But gosh, they delivered my. You know, they delivered my iced tea really quickly, and it's delicious. Yeah. Like, or Google, it's ah, they're they're a horrible monopoly, and yet, wow, they were fast on giving me that answer if so and so is alive anymore, or whatever they decide. Yeah, no, I mean, it's I always search people if they're dead or not. So, <laughs> go ahead. Um, Facebook trust in Facebook has precipitously dropped right. in the past year, and so I don't think it's inevitable that trust is always at high levels. Even if people kind of like, right? Trust in Facebook has dropped. Usage has not. Yes. Well, that's because there has not been a great alternative, right? Right. And people don't necessarily believe or want to believe the healthy, you know, ness of quitting. Um, but trust itself has eroded, and so mm-hmm. I think trust could erode in these other companies as well. And last question: Are you worried about who runs these companies at some point? Because one one of my worries has always been: um, many years ago, I was in. I wrote a story about Google trying to take over Yahoo Search. Yep. I think I've talked about this before. And they, I, they were going to try to, it was going to get them 90% of the market at this point. Um, Yahoo was still a substantively large search uh, yep. 
did subsequently large search business, and Microsoft was the third one. And I was very much, you know, I was struck by they can't have 90%. Why isn't our government stepping in to do something about that? That's a ridiculous amount of market share. And so I, a line I wrote was at least Microsoft knew they were thugs. Google pretends they're all happy with their funny balls and their crazy eating habits and their weird clothes and stuff like that. But they're still, as adorable as they are, they're still just as evil as Microsoft was. And so I was making that point, and I think it was Eric Schmidt who called me up and said, that's really mean, like, that you say we're thugs. And I said, well, I, I think you're worse than thugs because you don't know you're thugs, and you are thugs, and therefore you're worse than thugs. And he was like, we're not thugs, we're really good people. We're really good people. And I said, I get that, but I can't imagine a world where, where you have a company of this much power over information what if someone, you know, and I, of course, it's like three clicks to Hitler, but that's what I said. It was like, what if Hitler ran Google? What if someone who wasn't so nice ran Google? And it was, and it was like, well, they don't. And I was like, yes, but what if they do? And they said, what if they don't? And so are you worried about the concentration of power in the hands of, a, again, a very small amount of people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I worry that you're basically saying, you know, they're, they intend good, right? And you know, it's like the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And... I believe, like we did this filter bubble study, that they did influence the 2012 election. Now, a lot of people um, on the left liked the outcome. And what we found, by the way, was um, when you searched for stuff, we found this thing called magic keywords, where if you search for something and you search for something subsequent, you would get extra results inserted based on the previous search. And so Obama was a magic keyword. So if you search for Obama and then gun control, you get three gun control results in the results. Romney was not a magic keyword. And so all no, these no, people... No, he was not a magic keyword. <laughs> yeah. And so all these people searched for uh, Romney and Obama, and there were tens of millions of extra Obama results inserted um, across the country for that entire run-up to the election. And you know we don't know what that changed, but I presume it actually did change a lot. Because people were searching just um, you know random issues that they wanted to hear about, and they were just getting Obama's take on it, not Romney's take. And do you believe that was purposeful? No, I don't. I think it's totally unintentional. Right. It was a result of the algorithm, you know, and, and they were questioned on it, and they were basically like, oops, and kind of the answer was, you know, when we created these magic keywords, Romney was less popular at the time, you know, it was a year before, and that just happened. But it was probably a, a tiny change that no one even knew about that had a big impact. Okay, questions from the audience? Lots of them. Okay, so let's start here. Uh, a question about how the, this conversation could or should change once it moves from the digital world. So a lot of times when we talk about privacy, especially tonight, we're talking about digital-first problems or problems that are because of digital-first companies. Uh, but specifically the advertising example, now we're seeing addressable advertising on TV where you can be just as targeted as you are online in your TV screen. Um, and that can change, depends on who they think are in the room at that time. And streaming. It's yeah. because of streaming, yeah. All of it. So how does, how does that conversation change now that it's not just digital and it's really everywhere? Yeah, I mean, so it, in a sense, it is digital because the streaming, the conversion from analog to digital on TV is a digital conversion. It doesn't feel digital because it doesn't look like you're browsing the internet. But a lot of it is still going over the internet. And so if you had something like Do Not Track, it could apply to all of these uh, mechanisms as long as it, it you know, remains digital. Um, and so I think it would apply to that situation as well as the kind of billboards. You know, there's been talk about individualized billboards. Right. Well, you saw the 
Tom Cruise movie, Minority Report, right? They yes. clicked his eyes and then it says, hello, Mr. Nakamura. <laughs> Would you like more fleece culottes or whatever the heck you wanted last time? Well, addressable ads on, from cable boxes, that comes through. Yeah. The data that cable companies have doesn't necessarily, I mean, yes, if you probably have some digital information coming and feeding into that, but it's grown. Well, they want to get the same information Google gets. Cable companies and telcos now are, are able now to get the kind of... Because they're like, if they can get it, why can't we get it? And usually t telcos were prohibited in, from getting that kind of... But now they're... And the point is, you're right. If they get it, why don't we get it? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with your premise that they're, they're trying to copy the tracking business model everywhere, right? Uh, to compete. And if it's outlawed some one place, it should be outlawed everywhere. Next question. Oh, I have a silly question. Okay. Why'd you name it Duck Duck Go? Ah, that's a good question. That's not a silly question. I, I, well, it is a good I question, and I that, wish I had ahead. a good answer. Yeah. Um, uh, I, which I don't. It's a really fun game. <laughs> yeah. Duck Duck Goose. Yeah. It is. Go ahead. Go ahead. You had no. Uh, that's a back. Well, where it. were you? You were sitting there and going, "Oh, it's either going to be like." So I was on a walk with my duck, wife. Duck, walk with my wife. Okay. Pre even having a company, and I, I was going to start something, and I was like, "That's a cool name," and didn't know what the company was. Who who thought of the name? Me, just popped in my head. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. There you have it. All right, next, right here. Do we have the right to be forgotten, and should we have the right to be forgotten? We currently don't in the United States. It's part of GDPR, um, and it's something we we comply with. It's an interesting question of where to draw that line, and it hasn't been one taken up very much in the U.S. yet. Because of the First Amendment. Yeah. It's, impos it's never going to happen here. So then what, what, if you were going to write an amendment, what would the amendment be to make the right to be forgotten? You would probably need a constitutional amendment because of the First Amendment. Yeah, to change the First Amendment. That's not happening. But the, the idea is whether you want it or not, too. The idea, can, can people take bad information, if a bad person can take bad if there's good and bad information about a good person, a bad person can take down good information about them. And so it gets into really thorny issues. The same thing around editing tweets right now. That's their excuse. Uh, there's lots of ways they could do it, by the way. They well, could it's, also, it's also like check the box. So if someone, has a, if someone has a history and they've paid their debt to society, should they keep getting that time and time again and not being able to move past it? Yeah, well, you know, the, they're not going to change that. But the, the, the line from the movie about the social network is the Internet's written in indelible ink. Um, so that is, it's an excellent question. I just don't think because of the First Amendment that it will ever get any traction here. I think every single thing you do online, every drunken college picture is going to stay there. I haven't heard the anyone rest. talking about that what, here. What, what drunken college pictures? <laughs> I don't have any. I'm, I'm really old. <laughs> Go ahead. What are you going to do? To, how, how are we going to help the advertisers who are getting progressively more and more addicted to data um, and have built these really robust data sets even without the Googles and the Facebooks of the world? Yeah, they have you Axiom, do, others. Yeah, you can work with Axiom, you can get lookalikes, you can deliver to them digitally or traditionally. And so the issue, I wonder, is also the advertisers, the P&Gs of the world, who are paying, and they're the ones who are subsidizing and encouraging this by paying for the ads. Yeah, data is starting to come out about this, and it, the data so far is that they're paying for a lot more for not much. Like, 
behavioral advertising has not been that effective. But they don't necessarily believe that that's true. Right. I, I agree we need empirical evidence a lot. But I think once they realize that they haven't been you know, getting much for what they've been paying for, um, they're totally happy to embrace contextual advertising again. They've also given up their relationship with the consumer. I had a really interesting conversation with the CTO of Ford. And one, I said, what's your biggest problem? And he said, well, the internet companies want to suck every bit of data and chomp it back out. And we, have a, we want a relationship with the consumer over time. They have a very different mentality towards their consumers because they buy things from them. And essentially, Google and Facebook are pass-throughs. They don't care about you. They just care, you know. So, so it would be interesting to see if they can regain power because you're right. It's not effective for P and G. It's not. They they are start. They do start to realize this. I yeah, think. yeah. I think they, they, they don't have any agency right now. And the question is, will these big advertisers? The problem is, the big advertisers are also getting disrupted by an Amazon, like Amazon selling all their Amazon goods, including advertising. Yes, everything. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't even talk about. Yeah, Amazon. I mean, it's right now they don't have a lot of choice because all the audience. If you want to reach billions of people, you got to go to Google's and Facebook. But if they're and Amazon, yeah, and Amazon. But if it's if it's broken up a bit and contextual is back, there can be other ad networks that aren't Google and Facebook because they are the only road. Okay, any more questions? Last one right here. Can there be a DuckDuckGo for YouTube? There can there be a DuckDuckGo for YouTube? It's a good question. It is one category which didn't hit on that doesn't have a great answer, honestly, yeah. right now. And um, there are there are great sites to put your video on. So Vimeo is a is a good example that I use for you know privately with my kids' videos. Um, but unfortunately, all the if you're a creator, all the eyeballs are on YouTube. It's another network effect. And so there's to break that network effect. Is very difficult. It's impossible yeah. almost. There's no other choice, and the expense of doing it is so high. So they can create monopolies without creating monopolies, which is really the question for our our legislators. Yeah, and that's another legislative question we didn't address, but that one is an argument for treating it as a utility at that point. If it's such a natural monopoly that you, you nothing can really compete with it, you need to regulate it as a utility or change. Law or change the way we do antitrust law. I think that's really there's interesting people like Lena Khan and others that are talking about the how to change the idea of what a monopoly is, and it doesn't have to cause consumer harm. In fact, it could have consumer good. You all like all the freebies you get from all these companies. You really do. That's the problem here. It's not harmful to consumers, except it is. It's harmful to society, but well, it's not. Well, there's a there's an interesting argument. There was a, another New York Times article from Brian Chen who left Facebook. And he saw his, it's one anecdote, but it was interesting. He saw his purchases go down by 50% on his credit card. Mm -hmm. And so you can say, well, he wasn't seeing a lot more ads, right? Because he wasn't on Facebook seeing all the ads. And that's definitely part of it. But some part of it was also because the ads were probably manipulative, you know, and they were kind of like manipulating him to buy stuff. And so that's arguably a direct consumer harm. It was money out of his pocket. Right. He wouldn't have spent otherwise from being manipulated. Addictiveness, yeah. which is something a lot of people are talking about. This side. I mean, I, go, I don't use Instagram. I don't use any of these services, by the way. But I was on Instagram the other day, and I was like, I must buy that strange little object. <laughs> yeah. that I don't know what it was. It was some bra that was better than other bras, and it was not. But it was like weird, and I don't know what it was doing to my brain. It was fat. I was. Yeah, they probably ran a thousand ads on that thing to like. It was weird. I literally trigger. had to have it. I didn't buy it, but I was. It's close. Close. Yeah. Close, but not quite so close. Anyway, thank you so much, Gabe. This is thank Gabe you. Weinberg from DuckDuckGo. Thank you all for coming.
Um, we'll be doing a lot more of these around on lots of topics. And I call, I'm at Kara Swisher on Twitter. Please tweet at me with ideas of people we should interview. We try to get a range of people to talk to. And so we really love suggestions. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Gabe for coming on the show. And thanks to you all for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you share it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. Search for them on your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. <laughs>